If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. We're going to read starting in verse 65 down to verse 72. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with the message. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, If you intend to celebrate with us this morning, the elements are provided for you in the back of the room. We will not be passing those out, coming by with those, so you're welcome to get up and uh, have those so that you're ready. Psalm 119, I'm going to begin reading in verse 65. The Bible says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Father, this morning as we read the words of Psalm 119, we pray that you would remind us of your goodness, remind us that you are good to us, remind us that your word is good, and Lord, remind us of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Psalm 119, by now you know if you've been with us that it's an acrostic poem. It has 22 sections. Those 22 sections are based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If you've been here the last couple of months, you may have started to think to yourself, this is one long poem. And it is a really long poem. In the original language in Hebrew, it's about 2,400 words, which if you compare that to books in the Bible, it's almost exactly the same Uh, length in terms of word, number of words in the chapter or in the book as Ephesians. There is one word difference, not in the content, but in the number of words when you compare Psalm 119 and Ephesians. And in case you're curious, Psalm 119 by itself is longer than Lamentations, Galatians, 1 John, Micah, Ruth, Song of Songs, James, 1 Peter, Philippians, 1 Timothy, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, Joel, Malachi, 2 Timothy, Zephaniah, 2 Peter, Jonah, Habakkuk, Haggai, Nahum, 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Jude, Obadiah, Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John. Those are ranked in descending order in terms of how many words are in those books. We often say things in the state of Texas like, if Texas were its own nation. And I googled that this week to see the first thing that would come up. The first thing that came up was, if Texas were its own nation, it would be the world's ninth largest economy. If Psalm 119 were its own book, it would be the 39th largest book in your Bible. It is a remarkably long poem, 176 verses long, and throughout those 176 verses, over and over and over and over again, the psalmist uses various words to talk about the Bible, the written Word of God what the Hebrew people would have called the Scriptures, 
the sacred writings, God's law, His commandments, His testimonies, His precepts, His ways, all of these words used more or less interchangeably to talk about God's Word written down for God's people. The repetition in Psalm 119 reminds you that the topic of the psalm is the Bible itself. And repetition is the key, not only to understanding the topic of the whole chapter, but usually repetition can help you within an individual stanza as you look at just an eight-verse unit and you say, what is the psalmist trying to say specifically in these eight verses? So this morning we're in the Tet stanza. So that means the first letter of the first word in each of the eight lines of poetry in this stanza begins with the Hebrew letter Tet or we would make the sound T. So eight of eight begin with tet. This is interesting. Five of eight, you don't see this in English because word order works differently. Five of eight in the Hebrew begin with the same word. And that's the Hebrew word tob. Tob. It's what we would call good. Good. Over and over, he starts sentences. Five of the eight in this stanza with the word Tob. It's the same word if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis in the earliest chapters of the Bible when God creates human beings and he places them in a garden and he says you can eat from any of the trees of the garden except I do not want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tob and Ra. Same word used here It's the Hebrew word tob, which we would translate as good. And the repetition of that leads you to the big idea. The Word of God is good. The Word of God is a good word. Now that seems pretty basic. Maybe you're ready for lunch. Got it. Bible's good. It is simple. It is straightforward. It is not complicated. Uh, It's direct. It's the kind of idea that most everyone in this room this morning and even many of those who were dancing on the front row and have gone down the hall can understand. If you say the Bible is a good book, but I just want to acknowledge with you that the people of God have struggled to believe that from the very beginning. And I gave you a number of references on your notes as you think about the people of God facing the temptation to question and to doubt the goodness of God's Word. I don't intend to look those up. I don't intend to read them with you, but I want to just talk about these references that I've set before you. And you can consider them this week and see if what the Word of God says is what we're talking about this morning. How about all the way back to the beginning, creation? God created Adam and Eve, as we've already said. He put them in Eden. He blessed them. He told them to be fruitful. He said, I want you to have dominion over everything that I've created. He said, I'm giving you all the trees to eat from. They're all yours except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat from that particular tree. Now, they didn't have a Bible written down, at least that we know of, but what they had is the Word of God given to them. You can eat from all the trees except this one tree. And it did not take long for them to face the temptation from the serpent who questioned God's Word, did God really say? And who contradicted God's Word, you will not 
die. They face the temptation, will we take a stand on the goodness of God's Word? Or will we listen to the serpent who is subtly implying that God's Word is not good, that it's actually restrictive and limiting, and it's taking away our options, and God is being a curmudgeon and not letting us eat from every single tree? Was God's Word good, or was it not? It's the same temptation, I think, essentially, that Abraham faced in Genesis chapter 22. This is after decades of Abraham walking with the Lord, learning about the Lord, learning that God was good, learning learning that God was good to his people. And the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and I want you to take him to the mountain that I'm going to show you and offer him as a burnt offering. And Abraham had to wrestle with that word from God. Was that a good word or a bad word? Abraham had to sort that out. We're not told, but I'm sure that it was a long night of sorting, thinking, I know that God is good. I know that He's good to His people. I don't quite understand this, and I don't know if I want to receive this as a good word, a good command from God, or something to be run from. It's the same temptation. Is God's word good? Or is it not? I think it's the exact same temptation that the Hebrews faced in Exodus chapter 20. Moses had brought them out. Abraham's family was now this massive multitude. And not only were they a Hebrew multitude, but the Bible says a mixed multitude. Other peoples came up out of Egypt with them. And they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it quaked and it shook and it thundered and it lightning. And Moses went up the mountain to get ten words from God. And Moses brought the words down to the people, written by the finger of God in rock. And the people had a decision to make. Are we going to receive this as a good word or not? Because this word from God, delivered by Moses, says that we can only worship Yahweh. None of the other gods that we're used to worshiping, we can only worship Yahweh. And it says we have to get rid of all our idols. And it says we have to be very careful with how we use God's name. And it says we have to clear our Saturday schedule forever to keep the Sabbath. And it says we have to stop being hateful to each other and lusting after each other. It says we have to stop taking from each other and lying about each other. It says we have to stop coveting what the other one has. Is this a good word or is it not a good word? Are we going to receive this as a good way to live from a good God? Or are we going to view this as just too demanding? What about Joshua, one generation later, with the children of the people who stood at the foot of Sinai? Those people, that generation having died, Joshua, with the new generation, ready to bring them in to the promised land, standing on the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan River, Jericho on the horizon. What is the first thing he does in the book of Joshua? He pleads with them to build their life on God's Word. Why? Because Joshua believed it to be a good word. What's the very last thing Joshua did at the end of the book? He pleaded with the people, having taken the promised land, to build their lives on God's good word. Israel never did a really great job of that. 
I don't know if you've read the Old Testament from Joshua up through the prophets, but they pretty much did a lousy job at believing that God's word was good. And so eventually they got kicked out of the land, just like God said they would, in his word. And a man named Jeremiah was a prophet who lived in Jerusalem. When the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem and hauled the exiles out and took them in chains to Babylon, Jeremiah wrote a letter to those people, conquered people, people who had loved ones, family members, spouses, children, slaughtered in the conquest, people who had lost their homes and everything that belonged to them, people who had been forcibly taken to a foreign land. He wrote a letter to those people. And do you know what he said in the letter? Essentially, God's a good God and He has a good plan for you. We put that verse on coffee mugs. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and plans to build you up and hopeful plans, good plans. Jeremiah told those exiles, I know you're in exile, but if you will build your life on God's good word, he has a good plan for you. It's hard to believe for those exiles as they just looked around at their circumstances. What about 70 years later when Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra brought the exiles back to the promised land. Nehemiah came last with a group and they built the wall around Jerusalem and they made the city secure. You know the first thing Nehemiah did after they built that wall? He held a, a Bible reading service. He called all the people together into one place and he built a box for Ezra the scribe to stand up on. Ezra, the same scribe we talked about recently who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it in Israel, Ezra 7.10. And Ezra stood up on the box in front of all these people who had come back to Jerusalem with nothing but the clothes on their back. And what did he do? He opened this book and he read the book to them. He read for five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours. He just read the book to the people. And they had a decision to make. What are we going to trust in? What are we going to build our lives on? Are we going to build our lives on Nehemiah's walls and feel safe and secure now that we're back and we have protection? Or are we going to actually build our lives on God's Word? And we're going to build our lives on it because we believe that it's a good book. What about the early church? We're getting closer to us. The early church, Acts 2. One of the first things you read about First Baptist Church of Jerusalem is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? The Scriptures. Why? Because Jesus had walked with them through the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi and showed them how everything in the Scriptures pointed forward to Him. So the apostles stand up and they do exactly what Jesus has done. They're teaching the good news about Jesus. They're opening the Scriptures, God's Word, to God's people. And everything was great until it wasn't. And men like Saul started ravaging the church, hauling people out of their homes, whole families. Hauling people in before the authorities. Threatening people with their very lives. The same men who had Jesus of Nazareth crucified. Calling in the first Christians, the first members of this church. Saying to them, stop talking about Jesus. 
We know that Jesus said to talk about him everywhere to everyone at all the time. But we're telling you to stop or else. And they had a decision to make. Is Jesus' word good? And should we do what he said no matter what? Or will we save our own necks? What I'm saying to you is that this temptation has run throughout redemptive history from the Garden of Eden all the way to 2023, 4020, East University Boulevard, Odessa, Texas, 79762. When you meet in this room with these people, when you leave this place, you go to your normal life, not your Sunday morning life, your regular life outside of this place, the temptation is, do you believe that this book is good or don't you? If you believe that this book is good, will you allow it to shape your home, your marriage, your very definition of marriage, your parenting, your grandparenting, your bank account, your giving, your spending, how you use your time, how you are involved here, how you're involved in our community, we allow it to shape what you think about God. We allow it to shape how you spend time with God during the week. Is it a good word or is it not a good word? It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced. It's the same temptation the people of God have faced down through the ages. It takes different forms. It looks slightly different depending on the context, but the question is always the same. You have received a word from God. Do you believe that it's good or not? And if you say that you believe that it's good, how is that actually impacting your life? The question we want to ask is this. How did the psalmist speak about the goodness of God's word? He spoke pretty simply. I've given you a lot of introduction. The, the contents of what he actually said is not all that complicated. It's pretty straightforward and pretty direct. The challenge this morning for us is probably not in understanding, but it's probably in application. So let's answer this question. How did the psalmist speak about the goodness of God's Word? Five truths. Number one, the goodness of God's Word is rooted in the goodness of God. God's word is good because God is good. I think verse 68 is the heart of this stanza. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is one of the most basic elementary truths that we try to teach our children. The goodness of God. We teach them little songs. God is good. God is so good. We sing with them, we teach them, we tell them stories. What does this story mean? It means God's good to His people, God cares for His people. We want our children to understand this. It's not a complicated idea. But I don't know if you've experienced difficulties lately or if you know people who have experienced difficulties lately. This is one of the first things to go out the window when we experience a difficulty. This basic Three-year-old Sunday school truth that God is good. In this room, it's easy. Fill in the blank. Yes, God is good, of course, absolutely. I would never write that God is bad. That seems pretty obvious. Then you get out into life, and it's hard. And if you haven't been tempted 
you will be tempted to question the very existence of God. Is He even there? If He is there, is He good? If He is good, is He good to me? Because it doesn't feel like in my situation and my circumstance that He's being good to me right now. You understand the exiles in Babylon who wanted to be in Jerusalem were wrestling with that. Is He really good to me? If He was being good to me, would we be in exile in Babylon, far from the promised land? Is He real? Is He good? Is He good to me? Is His Word really good? You will face those temptations. And at the bedrock bottom of all of it is the biblical conviction that God is good. And because He's good, and you receive that on faith, you understand that His Word is also good. The goodness of God's Word is rooted in the goodness of God. Secondly, the goodness of God's Word is related to the goodness God shows to His people. Again, verse 68, you are good and you do good. Not only are you good, God, in the abstract, in the theoretical, but in your relationship to your people, you are good to them. It's not just a systematic theology exam answer or a Sunday school answer where you raise your hand and you say God is good, but it actually impacts your life. Because He's good, He's good to His people. The psalmist says the same thing in verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant. That's the word tob, same word. You have been good to your people. You have been good to your servant, the psalmist says. God is good. And he's good to his people. Can I just read you a few verses? I'm going to put them on the screen. Verses that remind us that God is good. Things that we forget very, very easily. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he made. We've talked about this recently. God is not quick to anger. He's slow to anger. His steadfast love is not of short supply. He is abounding in steadfast love. And He is good to all that He has made. Look what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why does He do that? Has He not figured out how to control the El Nino winds so that it only rains on the just? No, He's good to all of His creation, because He is good. You are good and you do good. You send rain for your people. Look what we read in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, because He needs nothing, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything that you have has been given to you by God. Why? Because He's good. He is good and He does good. One more verse. Every good and perfect, uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change, His character doesn't change. He was good in the beginning. He's good today. He will be good tomorrow. He will always be good. He is good and He does good. Therefore, His word to His people is a good word. 
Number three, the goodness of God's word results in wisdom. We'll be brief here. Verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. If you'd like to make notes, you can just make a note that over just a few verses in Psalm 119, verse 97 to 104, the mem section, which we're a few weeks away from, the whole section is about wisdom and knowledge and understanding and insight. That's the emphasis there. I'm just giving you the big idea right now. It's going to be about wisdom. The Word of God gives us wisdom. And that's what he's saying back here in the Tet section in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. If you build your life on God's Word, the Bible gives you hope that you will be a wise person. If you reject the goodness of God's Word, the Bible insists that you will be a fool. And that's a binary category as it relates to the Word of God and us as human beings. Receive the Word of God, build your life upon it, you'll be wise. Reject it, ignore it, you're a fool. Number four, the goodness of God's Word is regularly learned through affliction. We might wish this were not the way, but it is the way. We talked about this word affliction back in verse 50. In verse 50, the psalmist says, This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Twice here he talks about affliction. The first one is in verse 67. And in verse 67, it sounds like a a general sort of category of affliction. He's not specific about what's going on. He simply says in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So we don't know exactly how he was afflicted, but what it sounds like in verse 67 is that this was God's discipline in his life to help him with a course correction. I was off, then I was afflicted, And now I've learned something that I needed to know. He talks about affliction later in this Tet section. He says in verse 69, The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Look what he says in verse 71. It is good, that's our word, our Tet word, tob. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. There's things as a disciple that you only learn through affliction. We just instinctively dislike affliction. We don't want it. We don't want anything to do with it. I'm not encouraging you to seek it. But when you experience it, understand that God is trying to teach you something. We talked about this. I just am amazed at how Psalm 119 all fits together. I resist the urge every week to make a lot of cross-references, but I want to make one right here. Look at Psalm 119, verse 25, the beginning of the Dalit section. He says, my soul clings to the dust. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. 
and I'll meditate on your wondrous works. We made the observation back in this section that many of us find ourselves with our soul clinging to the dust and we want God to help us understand something, but what we want to understand is what's happening in real time. We're afflicted, we're suffering, we're in pain, we're grieving, we're hurting, we're experiencing loss, our soul is clinging to the dust, and what we instinctively say is, God, tell me why you're doing this. What the psalmist prayed as his soul was clinging to the dust is that God would help him understand his word, not his circumstance. That's a prayer back in the Dalit section. Help me understand your precepts when my soul is clinging to the dust. In our section, the Tet section, he seems to have sort of come full circle, at least to some degree, where he can look backwards at his affliction. In verse 71, he says, you know what? It was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good. Tob. Why was it good? Because in that affliction, I learned something about your statutes. The goodness of God's Word is regularly learned through affliction. Number five, the goodness of God's Word is worth more than gold. Verse 72. There's a comparison being made here. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is better than that. The Word of God is better to the psalmist than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Hold your spot. Flip backwards to Psalm 19. Corey asked me this morning if there were a, a passage that we might read earlier in the service, and I said, how about Psalm 19, 7 to 11? This business that we just read in verse 72, Psalm 119, about your word is better than all these gold or silver pieces. It sounds a lot like what David wrote in Psalm 19. We don't know who wrote Psalm 119. We know David wrote Psalm 19. And a lot of people pull comparisons and think that David was likely the author of Psalm 119. We don't know that. But I just want to look with you again at Psalm 19, 7 to 11. Corey's already read it. I don't think that I just need to read it to you wrote again. How many of you remember in the old days of church, we did responsive readings? Remember responsive readings? It's a good practice. We should probably do more of it, reading the Word of God out loud. And we're just going to practice that together. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Your Bible's open, but I'm going to put it on the screen so we're all reading off the same page and we're not all on top of each other. And most of the words are black. I'll read the black words. You fill in with the orange, reddish words when we get to them. The early service did this with great gusto, so no pressure. Here we go. The law of the Lord is reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than in drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Verse 72, your word is better to me than thousands of gold or silver pieces. If you were to be offered the largest NFL quarterback contract or the Word of God, the psalmist is telling you that the Word of God is more valuable. If you were to be offered a fully funded 401k that would never run dry, the psalmist is telling you that the Word of God is more valuable than that. If I were to offer you a deal, a winning Powerball ticket, $900 million, or the word, take one, leave the other forever, the psalmist is saying to you that the word of God is better than thousands of gold or silver pieces. It's good. This is Sunday morning. You're in church, in a Baptist church. We're talking about the goodness of God and the goodness of His Word. I think all of that is pretty obvious considering who we are and where we are. Nothing that I've said probably has caught you off guard. It's all pretty standard stuff. It's all straightforward right out of Psalm 119. Monday's coming. The alarm's going to go off. The kids will have to get off to school. You'll have to get off to work. Maybe someone will be waiting for you at the gym or a place where you serve or volunteer. You'll have things to do this week. You'll have appointments to go to. You have to make a run to the grocery store. You'll get busy. You'll have shows you want to watch. You're going to slip into your normal weekly routine. In this room, it's easy to have the preacher make you read words out loud off a screen and say, yes, we believe this is a reward, it's good, it's treasure, it's valuable. The danger that comes to you tomorrow morning is you put your spiritual life on autopilot until next Sunday. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday go by, and you don't think much about the goodness of God or the goodness of His Word. You understand that's the same temptation that God's people have been facing for millennia. Do you believe that God's Word is good? If you do, between now and next Sunday, when we will pick right up with Psalm 119 verse 73, I think you should give some time to reading it and thinking about it. I'm not asking you to clock in for a certain amount of minutes every day. I'm not asking you to do it at a certain time of day. I'm just saying if we are people who genuinely believe that this book is good, I think it should play a part in our lives outside of this room. We should be people who read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. 
people who actually act like we think it's more valuable than a pile of gold. If we're people who believe that this book is good, this book certainly has to shape not only the way we live, but the fundamental ways that we think about God and we think about ourselves. This book, which we've said this morning is good, says that God is holy and that we are not holy. We're sinful people and that our sin separates us from Him. And you have to make a decision. Do I believe the Bible is good when it says that? Do I believe that it's good when it calls us, me, you, a sinful person? Or do I want nothing to do with that kind of talk? I want you to understand that the goodness of God's Word is most clearly and vividly seen in the gospel, which we would call the good news. It's the good news about Jesus Christ that most fully and most clearly reveals to us the goodness of God's Word. Because God in His Word, in the gospel, tells us not only that He's holy, and not only that we have fallen short of His glory, but that God who is good loved the world to such a degree that He gave His only Son to live for us and to die for us on a cross so that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. This good word doesn't just talk about the separation that exists between us and God, but it also talks about the remedy to that separation, how reconciliation can be experienced. It's only through the cross. It's only through the cross where Jesus was crushed for our sins, where the one who knew no sin was made sin for us, where the one who deserved blessing received a curse that should have fallen on us. It's the cross that reconciles us to the Father. And I understand that the world listens to the story of the gospel and laughs. They think it's a foolish, silly fairy tale. Guess what? The world has thought that for about 2,000 years now. Because when Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth, one of the first things he said to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 18, he said, putting about the word of the cross. Can we put that verse up? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The world thinks it's folly. Absolute and utter foolishness, the word of the cross. This idea that Jesus was crushed to reconcile us to the Father. The world hears that and says it is foolishness. Those who are being saved believe that it's a good word. It's good news. It's gospel truth. It's the power of God for salvation. You understand the cross is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has nothing to do with anything that we can offer God or do for God. Any claim that we can make on God. But it has only to do with what God has done to reconcile us to himself through the death of his son on the cross. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. If you've repented of your sin, if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been obedient to His command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. I'll encourage you to take your elements that you've picked up. You can open the side that has the bread.
And I'm going to read from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and verse 24. The Bible says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can open the side with the cup and we'll read the very next verses in 1 Corinthians 11. The Word of God says, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we're grateful this morning to stop, to be reminded of your goodness. You're a good God. We're thankful to be reminded of your goodness to your people, your goodness to all of creation. You are good and you do good. Father, we're thankful to be reminded that your word is good. And that whatever our circumstance in life, if we can learn about you and your word, then you've put us in a good circumstance. Father, we pray for those who are in the room this morning who have never repented of their sin and put their faith in the death of Jesus, in the cross, the message of the gospel. Father, we pray this morning that you would open their hearts to their need for Jesus that you would draw them to the cross, that you would give them, grant them the gift of repentance and faith, give them eyes to see. Father, for those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we know that in a room like this, in a place like this, it's easy to talk about your goodness and the goodness of your word, and yet the week ahead is coming, and temptation has not changed from the very beginning. Lord, we will be tempted this week to question your word. We'll be tempted this week to ignore your word. We'll be tempted this week to reject your word. And in all of those temptations, we want to be people who believe in the fundamental goodness, not only of you, but also of your word. So Lord, convince us of this truth. Be honored in our worship as we sing about your goodness and we think about the goodness of your word. Lord, be honored as we sing. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.